Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Be the Right Club Today podcast. Really excited about today's guest, Mr. Martin Chuck. Martin's one of the best instructors in the world, runs one of the best, most, uh, the, one of the busiest golf academies down in, uh, down in Arizona, down in the warmth, down in Scottsdale yeah. or Phoenix, and is also the inventor of all, all the awesome tour striker training aids that we use here at the academy and you guys are seeing being used all around the world. So, Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys, Chase, and how great to be with you. And I'm remiss to say if I'm not a big Hal Sutton fanboy, I'll tell you what, man, when I was a little kid getting those golf magazines and seeing you on the cover made me research Jimmy Ballard and, and obviously George Knudsen, and I'm thrilled to be on with you. I know I've met you briefly at the PGA show, but it's great to be on the show with you with you guys. And Chase, I'm sorry, man, but I'm, 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 I'm fawning over Hal here a little bit. I apologize. Nope, no, no worries. I was telling Hal, we actually, we met when I was playing in, uh, in Reno, played for Reno at UNR. I was working with EJ Fister and I met oh, you yeah. out of, I met you, you were the, either the, the dog or the head pro at, at Arrow Creek. And I was That's telling right. Hal, man, if I, if I would have known, you know, who you were to become, I would have, I would have, I would have hit you up and picked your brain. We talked one plane swing a little bit for about an hour one day on the range out there. And the next cool. thing you know, you've, you've invented all the tour striker stuff. And I was like, I, I know him. I, I, I know oh, him. <laughs> man, I love EJ. He's one of my favorite dudes. We go way back to yep. his, uh, to the um, East Aurora Golf Club in, in East by Buffalo, New York. His dad, Up in New York. legendary club pro. And EJ is great, great human and damn fine player in his day and great coach himself. Yeah. Yes, he was. Oh, Martin, uh, I know you You told me you were from Toronto. I love Canada. Uh, cleanest country in the world. Uh, <laughs> people are super nice. Uh, you know, I always played well at Glen Abbey. Glen Abbey was a fun place to play. Uh, you know, what, so what I, you, I've got a lot of fond memories up there. Well, you did play well at Glen Abbey. What do you What do you think it was about that golf course? I mean, back nine, you had to be a ball striker for sure. Front nine, a bit more room. But what do you think? I think that's why I did well because I could kind of put the ball where I wanted to put it. Yeah, uh, most of the time. Uh, you know, there were some intimidating holes there. Uh, brought a lot of people you know number 11 bothered a lot of guys number 12 the par three there bothered some guys 14 was a pretty good driving hole uh and then 17 and 18 you know had to stand up and hit some shots but uh love canada you glenn abbey you gotta step up and hit two shots on 17 and 18 uh miss glenn abbey actually yeah, well, we, we miss, I tell you what, we miss you. And I'm glad you came up and played up there because when I was a little guy, I was so pumped to go to the Canadian Open. I mean, it's the first time I saw you hit a golf ball. Um, Nicholas Norman played there. And, and it's something, you know, you can be around good players. And you, and, but when, you, when, a, when a premier tour player hits a golf ball, it's, it's a completely different sound. And, and not many kids, unless they get to be around, maybe their club pro is pretty good. I don't know, but it's a, the speed and the way you hit it and the way Nicholas hit it and the way Norman hit it for sure. Cause that, that was a different sound. And then other guys kind of hit it and they hit it. Great. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Weisskopf had that sound. And when, so when I was a young guy, like that experience of standing by these dudes, I'm like, wow, that, that's it. That's the sound. And I didn't hear that from 
many people other than from well, Mo Norman, I heard it from George Newton, but it was special to see it and see how you guys played around a, a pretty darn tricky golf course, you know, and you, especially like that back nine, if you don't hit it where you're looking, you're going to make some numbers. And, and, and at a time, like the, the games changed obviously, but you bombed it. And now these kids hit it so darn far, like that golf course in 18 was a formidable hole. Now guys are hitting it down there right to the lake. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? It is. It is nuts. You know. So let's let's move into some questions here. Yeah. Mark, I know that you've developed a lot of training aids. Back in the era that I grew up, I saw very few training aids. And sure. you know, almost felt out of place if you used one as a mm -hmm. professional. Right. Uh tell us your favorite one that you've developed and why. And I mean, you know, we've got them here in the academy, so let's let's start Let talking one. about them. You know, so obviously I'm in my garage here. So this is my little studio that I do a lot of my uh, student recap stuff on. And you know, like this is the crazy one that was didn't start at all, but because I had, um, you know, I'm 53, but when I was when I was still playing a Canadian tour. I envisioned this idea of a swing fan because there was that baseball bat swing fan that you'd see on ranges, you know, teaching pros and have it. And so I kind of liked warming up with it stretching. I thought, man, it'd be nice if this thing was, was portable. So I actually made a portable one that was made out of plastic that just folded around the shaft and kind of clipped together. You could put it inside your golf bag, but I didn't know how to get it on, you know, out there to the world and I didn't have the money to do it. So I kind of let it go. And then few, sure, sure enough, a few years later at the PGA show, I see it and I'm thinking, Oh, good for that dude. But this crazy thing, you know, this was a came out. I don't know now. It's been a while. I mean, it, it was probably came out in 2009. And, you know, the first one's always kind of special because you got it done. You know, it was something I got done, had this crazy idea. And I said to my wife, hey, babe, I've got this idea to inspire people to think about it, how a golf club could behave differently. You know, how the dynamics and so forth might deliver a club differently. And she said, go for it, you know, and then and I went down the road of getting an attorney and checking to see if it was something I could do. And it was all cloak and dagger. I was terrified. Somebody kind of find my idea. And, you know, now I'm way more chill about stuff like that, but I got it done through good luck, a lot of good luck. And then the right connections show up at the PGA show, my wife and I in, in January, 2009, and five five foot table and a little thing behind me kind of like that hama thing but it just said tour striker on it and if people came up like chuck cook came up and and i mean tons of high level coaches came up and i'm like darn that's a good idea and next thing you know we we sold a bucket load of those things and and then it was on to the you know the smart ball then inflatable ball with the lanyard we sell the daylights out of that silly thing you know, I mean, it, all it is, is, is something to help you keep your, you know, arms a little closer together, not separate too much. And that, you know, I've got one sitting all crumpled up on my desk right here that we blow up and use with students all the time. And it, it's been awesome. And then we have, you know, the plane mate is a bizarre one that my, my friend and I co-developed. He's at the Vintage Club in Indian Wells, David Woods. Um, yeah, I've got a desk full of tinkery stuff I'm always farting around with because I just love doing it, bud. We, uh, so, we, used, we use the smart ball a ton in here. Thank definitely, you. Appreciate it. How go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. Well, no, I'm just, why do you think that, do you think teaching has just gotten so much better that a lot of the aids are coming along? 
we didn't have them in our era. You know, you right. know, we didn't have them in our era. So right. what led to all this? What do you think? You know, I, I think as a coach, I'm, I'm sort of impatient. I mean, I'm patient, but I want to get, I want to get the student understanding something quick. And so for me, you know, being a, a disciple of George Knudsen, right. And then my other influences were golfing machines. So you couldn't have two guys farther apart. You had George on one side and golf machine on the other side. Right. And, you know, I always saw good players, you know, wherever dress was and impact was just slightly different. And, and it's like, all right, so how, how do I inspire somebody to look at something different? Well, that's what the, the training club did that because we're like, how the, the story is kind of cute. This guy retires, he joins the club. He's 60 years old. He's literally a rocket scientist from England. I don't know that they had rocket scientists, but he moves over to Nevada to Arrow Creek chase where you, where I met you. And the guy wants to learn how to play golf. And every swing is like back up and hoist and hoist. And even when I got his hands on nice and the face made sense, he'd still try to back up and hoist it. And, and I used to do a thing with a Sharpie. I'd take the spot, I'd take a Sharpie marker and kind of draw a dot on the third or fourth groove in the middle of the face. And I'd say, watch this. If I hit a good shot, I can smear that Sharpie mark. And the guy, look, and he couldn't for the life of him unless he chunked it, you know? So, you know, how, to, how a body rotates and relocates a little bit and how the weight of the club catches up a certain way. I thought, how do I speed that process up? And the silly club, when I put that in this dude's hands, he's like, you can't hit that. You know, and he goes, I go watch, you can. And I just made a normal swing and the ball flew pretty well. And he goes, Oh, I see, I see. And then next thing you know, he started to see how, you know, maybe this wrist was a little in it, you know, starting to flee out of there, but maybe when he hit a ball, it was in a different spot. So it triggered, you know, a, a change in how he saw things. And so that, and then that's when I went to my wife and said, I think I got something here because this dude changed right away. And then the ball was just super simple because this thing fits in there and on the way down, as you know, Chase, and how a lot of people, they want to separate and they'll steepen the shaft immediately. You know, to me, you were like the master. You were the first guy that, that made me understand connection via your time with Ballard back in the day, how like, you know, how things didn't have to get so disjointed and stuff could stay in front of you. So the ball helped with that. And then risk conditions, you know, one of my little gizmos that, that is that I use with people all the time. And I don't want this to turn into an infomercial, but you know, this <laughs> and, little and, event. And, of, and Martin, real quick, name them when you, when you bring them up, because a lot of people are listening just normal. Yeah. Podcasts. So the yeah. educator is this little coat hanger, right? So the coat hanger kind of fits in the end of a golf club and you can get it, you know, even with the face. And just so people realize that on the way back, you know, the, the weight of the club can change how the risk conditions work. So when this thing's kind of, on a golf club properly, you know, it'll start in one place and it'll go to another. And so that event, it, the dynamics that kind of create that, they're hard to kind of exp explain to people. But when you have something that you can visually look at and you go, oh, okay, you mean when I go, when I change direction, the weight of the club stresses a certain way and kind of makes the face do a certain thing. And if I do it wrong, it, it goes, you know, does something else. I'm like, yeah. So I'm just trying to get to the, to the finish line faster. So if people can do it with an external device to give them an insight and awareness, then we take it away and see if they can do it. And if they can't, maybe give it back to them. Because you can show them, it, but they need to feel it and they need to understand it. So if they understand it, then they feel it. The finish line to me is closer. And like how you dug it out of the dirt with, with you know, some pretty good coaching, right? And maybe, maybe you'd have done things differently. You know, I, I don't know. And we haven't spent enough time together. My day was just a, like you, 
Now I never got to the playing level you did, but I, I loved it. I loved hitting balls. I loved figuring it out. And I loved insights from Knudsen, uh, the quips Mo Norman would chirp in my ear, which made no sense to me when I was a kid, but I loved being around the guy, you know, Ben Kern, who you might've known from the tour days back in the day who played it. Yeah. He was my, uh, the, the head pro at the course I grew up at the national in Toronto. Um, you know, so it's different now. Like nowadays, like a kid shows up on my range and he, and he stands in front of a machine and he can either put up a 115 club head speed and a buck 75 ball speed, or he can't, you see what I mean? Like back in the day, how many guys could like do that? Like uh, there was a few, like you don't, you wouldn't remember this how, but at the, at the Bob Hope in 1995, six, seven, we hosted it at Indian Ridge country club. Okay. I was the director of golf there. And you, you were coming out of a bit of a slump and starting to play really good again. You're like putting with like, like a yeah. hockey stick on almost. Yeah. And, and you're coming back and Chris Astorga, who was an old buddy of mine was looping for you or not, maybe he wasn't looping for you then, but he, he had looped for you. And, and it was like, there was a bunker that was 240 carry. Okay. On one of the par fours. Well, 240 carry now is a joke. If there's not a guy on tour that can't chip at 240, you know, right. and even into the wind, I mean, they're just going to send it. But that tournament at the Bob Hope that year, a lot of guys gave consideration to that bunker. Would Corey Pavin would play around it? Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the dudes that couldn't hit over the darn thing. There was a handful of them. Had to, you hit over the bunker? No big deal. It was the fourth hole on, on the course that we played at. It just made the par four easier if you could just chip it over that bunker. But I mean, like the game has evolved so much that these machines that you can either stand in front of this track man or flight scope or foresight and put up a number. And if you can't, it's almost a benchmark to say, Hey, you know what? You ought to consider doing something else. Cause if you can't like put some speed up and you can't like, I can help you get your face and path a bit more organized. I can help you understand a few things that, that might make you a little bit more reliable in your downswing. I can inspire you to uh, maybe make a better uh, shot selection into a front pin or a back pin and, and maybe change how you think about landing angles you know, creative things like that, that a coach can inspire and maybe give you a technique for, but I'm telling you what, if you can't jump this high, you know, I'm just joking. It's just a, as a, as a, you know, an analogy, you can't play man, you know, and I hate saying that, but I've had kids come to my range at, you know, 22, 23 and swing at a buck five. And I'm like, buddy, you know, I'm old man. I can still swing at a buck five. Like you, you like, I can show you 10 kids right now that are going to fly at you know, 285 to 310 yards and hit it kind of straight, not, not real straight, but within 60 yards of 320 yards out there, you know, I mean, you kind of need a little bit of brawn and speed in this game. I don't know why I'm going down that road, but I just try to get people to realize quick, you know, what the issue is. If there's a, if there's something external that can help them. Um, and my favorite thing is just a rope on the driving range, you know, 20 yards of rope and an aim stick at the end. Can you, can you walk into the ball nicely? Can you start the ball where you want it to go? You know, cause if you it, like, that's my favorite training aid and it's a piece of string and a stick. And then if it's, you know, if arms or wrists or, or rotation doesn't suit up, maybe it's a plane mate, maybe it's a smart ball. Maybe it's a newbie understanding how a club is delivered differently dynamically because you, you know, if, if you're not doing all these funny things, the club gets into a place where your physicality gives a pretty good hit to the ball. You know, so anyway, went on a mild rant there. I apologize. But that's, but I want to take it a little bit step further. 
you know, I did have one training aid that I used whenever I was growing up and Jimmy Ballard developed what he called the connection where he locked down the left arm. And for anybody out there that understands that, you know, he, he considered underneath your left arm, if you were right, right-handed player, there was a, an electrical socket and you plugged in the male plugged into the female part of it and you didn't break the prongs off. Now, I hit a lot of balls in that. There were some things about that that I felt were really good because it made me learn how to hit the ball with my chest. Mm -hmm. And the one thing missing from that, I always thought was missing from that. It would not account for the shoulder rotation that needed to take place. And, you know, it locked the shoulder, which meant you had to move your forearms more in order to somewhat keep it on plane. Most everybody that worked with Jimmy got a little bit, you know, we got the club up steeper. You know, we got on top of the ball. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think about that. Do you think there's some shoulder rotation in it? Absolutely. I know. I, I, I remember that now that you mention it. And um, one of the coaches in Toronto was a big Jimmy Ballard fan. And, and Newtson didn't use, we didn't, all, we, all Newtson used was a mirror. But I do remember that white thing and your arm went in it and you, yeah. you know, you had Velcro and you strapped it in there. I'll tell you what I really loved about that thing is that it, it, it gave you the sense of a side on game better than most golf. Like most golfers will stand in, look at a golf ball, look down a target line, and they'll try to direct a club head down some kind of a straight thing. And, and as soon as you, you know, Mo, Mo Norman would say, Oh yeah, I swing straight back 40 inches straight through 40 inches. That might be his feel, but that's not what he did. And he was the straightest hitter I've ever seen. But you know, that thing that Ballard had, that white Velcro chest strap, arm strap gizmo, you know, it certainly made you rotate and made you realize that, you know, this is a side-on rotational game. And for a lot of golfers, Hal, I think that helped them a ton because as soon as they put that on, if they were some guy trying to take it straight back and straight through and chase, chase the target line too much, they were terrible. So when they got Jimmy's thing on there, at least they had a bit of a circle going. They start to see golf balls that could maybe go straight based on circles and i try to teach that geometry now i don't i don't try to plug in arms i mean maybe on a like a 40 yard pitch shot i might encourage a bit of that you know i would say extreme connection but you know and nowadays with the need for speed you know there's a lot of arm elevation and in just so people have the opportunity to hit it far like you hit it far i can't even imagine how far you'd hit it if if you had a little bit more freedom you know in your in your arms than then maybe you practiced you know, to, to take away actually. Well, you know, I'm, I'll be 64 my next birthday. And I sit around chase knows this, you know, I, I think about all the hours that I put into golf. If I could have had some of the stuff that they have today, you know, what would I have been, you know, right. Would I have been better? Would I have been worse? You know, one of the things, I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and mention this. I'm a player that teaches a little bit. Yeah. now that I teach a little bit, I go out on the golf course and I don't even know what to think anymore. And I right. was never, ever, you know, perplexed about what I needed to think about on the golf course. Yeah. But I know. teaching really does that to you, I think. Yeah. And, um, and, and the thing, I, when people come to my camp, you know, and you guys know I do a golf camp every week and I love individual lessons too, but the camp environment's pretty cool. The, the number one thing I teach people like is the walk-in routine because 
I think we're all basket cases. Let's be honest. We're all nuts. Every golfer to a degree is nuts. I'm nuts. Chase, how you're, we're all nuts. Everybody watching this, you're all nuts too. Now, the beautiful thing about somebody who can, can like break away and play golf is if you have this, it's almost like I call it a subconscious trick trigger and I'm not a shrink by any, 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 any way, shape or form, but can you say, okay, I've got this shot. It's a buck 50. It's a little breeze in my face. Okay. It's this club. This is where I kind of want the ball to go. Okay, fine. Check those boxes. This is my plan. Then can you take like a little, and then walk into a routine. So like we give everybody at the camp, a little keychain, and they get these little, I don't have any sitting on my desk, but they get these little badges. Okay. And the badges, I call it tiger 2000. You know, I call it tiger 2000 because Scott Fawcett, who, you know, decade golf, He did this amazing video of Tiger at Pebble when he won by 15 and his walk-in routine on the golf ball for four days in a row was within like within half a second from the time he literally took his first step toward the ball to touching the ball. So by the time he kind of, you know, took a little half practice swing, fixed his shirt, stood back behind it, kind of sighted up from that first step to was so spot on every single time it was ridiculous now so when people come to the camp i tell them this i go listen you're gonna slice it you're gonna hook it you're gonna i don't know whatever you're gonna do you're gonna do we're gonna help you with technique right that's something we're gonna i'm gonna help you with a bastardized interlock grip that everybody messes up and i'm gonna try to help you with your grip and i'm gonna try to organize some stuff so the club doesn't pitch around all weird on you okay that's dynamic stuff let me help you with something static that you will, if you can do this well, you don't even have to be a good golfer, but you can masquerade as a great golfer. I know that sounds crazy, but if I said to you, I'm going to have you walk into the golf ball and I'm going to step up and show you, you know, if I said to somebody, if, if they did this, if they walked into a shot, you know, there's the golf ball, I'm hitting it toward the camera and they stood in here and they made some kind of little semblance of a little practice swing. And then they stood back behind the ball. I don't have much room here. So but can you imagine if they kind of walked into the shot and they paired their hands on and they took a little step of their trail foot and then they aimed the blade and then they looked and then they set their lead foot and they dropped their right foot back and they looked and they stood up a tick and they waggled the club, Ella, Nicholas and Hal and everybody was any good. And then they settled back to the ball and I said, stop. And then all we did was say, okay, that was beautiful. That rhythm of that walking routine, that's something you can control. Not many guys could control a ball like Hal, but a human can control their routine of how they step into a shot every time, you know? So the big part of my camp is, can you literally walk into a shot nicely? Can you, you know, choose, can you, and, and a part of the rant on this is, I think simulators really screwed people up in a lot of ways because they don't look down range in a simulator. So I try to teach people, even if they're hitting it 10 feet into a net or into a, a screen, like if you have an eight iron and you hit it 130 or you hit it 170, let your eyes look through the screen, 165, 170, kind of see that visual, bring it back to where you are, take a look, come back. If you bomb driver and it goes 320, good. See yourself, go looking down there, 320. If it goes 210, fine, it's 210. Look to your target side and come back to your golf ball, learn how to waggle and miss the damn thing. Whiff it, I don't care. I always say, go ahead and hit me a good one or miss one for me. And people look at me like, what do you mean miss one? I go, hit, hit one hit one or miss one. I don't care. It's okay. I'm going to miss. I'm going to, you know, I hit more good shots than bad shots, gratefully. But the routine with which you walk in 
man, that's a huge thing. I go, you take that away from the golf camp, you're a way better golfer. You know, the technical stuff we're going to work on, okay, does your wrist get too cuppy, whatever. Just give me this routine piece. And then before you yell the F word after you miss, give yourself three seconds. Newton always used to make us kind of reflect for three seconds, even if we hooked one in the toe, hooked one in the lake. You know, he's like, come on, what do you learn from that? What, what could you learn? You know, okay, okay, thank you. And then I could, then I could be pissy for a bit. Then I had to get over it, right? But so for me, it's just the massive part of how to walk into a shot every single time. Because if you can do that, now there's a bit of an autopilot. You know, there's a sense of calm. So way back to your point on when you're playing how and you're teaching and you're working and you're looking at everybody's mess, you're trying to juggle everybody's mess now in this guy and in, in one of the top five ball strikers that ever lived, in my opinion, you. Okay. And so if, if the tiger 2000 bid is beautiful because tiger goes through his little primer and that doesn't, that doesn't count by the way, what you do behind the golf ball, you might take a couple a driver might take a big rippy practice swing and just get ready to go. Cause you haven't hit a driver in 15 minutes. Cause he, maybe it was a slow par four or something. Then you got to rip a driver. So maybe you get it ready to go. But then from that moment, you kind of sight it up and walk into it. That should be the same, man. That should be, you know, your couple waggles, your couple looks, a sense of calm and send it. And then, and then, you know, wherever it goes, it goes, do it again. Hopefully it's something that's, you know, it's in front of you and it's an easy day and it's not, you know, you're not chipping out of the trees all day or figuring out all kinds of funny shots based on maybe it's an easy day. Maybe it's not an easy day. But the routine should be something you can control and you can do time and time and time again. And that helps the busyness kind of be busy and let the busyness go with that walking routine, you know? And then afterward, think about it again and then let it go again. Right. One of the things we talk about a lot on here to that point is, you know, golf's really hard and we really don't have control over the golf ball. You know, Howe is one of the best ball strikers ever, and he still hits, hit, hit a lot of bad shots. And so it's that whole idea of control the things you can control. You can control, your, you can control your intention. You can control your pre-shot routine. And so I love that even, you know, these people come to you and they're like, fix my golf swing. My swing sucks. I hit it terrible. And you have to kind of slow them down and say, look, let's make sure we're at least starting the foundation correctly to give yourself somewhat of a chance to be successful. And then mm -hmm. the post shot routine, I think, or the assessment is so important too. Okay. You hit it all in the woods. First point was, was your pre-shot routine the way you wanted it to be? Was your, was your visuals, was your commitment, was your breathing? Was it how we want it to be? Okay, cool. Now you got, you can be a little nicer on yourself. If it wasn't, you start there because again, we're just going to hit bad shots. We're never going to own, we're never going to own the golf ball forever. It's just not going to happen. We're going to borrow it for a couple of weeks at a time. And then it's going to leave us again. Mm -hmm. It's one of the rants uh, question for you about students. So you, you talked about, you know, what you tell your students, what do you want? What do you want from your students? Who makes who, in your opinion, what makes the best student? Musicians. Musicians do. So I always ask people, I start my camp off um, juggling three balls. And I say, and I always usually pick a lady because uh, I'll pick a lady because it's kind of funny and they get embarrassed and they giggle and that sets, breaks the ice. And I'll say, and I can juggle three balls, no big deal. But I'll say to them, okay, you know, two balls in one hand, one in the other, just toss one and catch. And they can do that. Okay. And so if I demonstrate the start of a camp, you know, so juggling three golf balls, right? Parlor trick. But so, you know, this is 
step one. Can you do that? Can you just toss and catch one? And most athletes, if you played, you know, baseball, basketball, football, whatever. And, and obviously ladies haven't done as much of that as guys, especially the ones that come see me 50 and older is usually the campers that come see me. I get some younger ones, but usually that's the age group. Um, I always joke. My favorite people are the ones with time and money. And that's usually the people that come see me. They're 50 and older, but so some, a lady will do this and catch it and we'll applaud. Hey, way to go, Susie. That was great. And then to kind of sequence from here to here, that's nobody does that unless they've worked on it. That second part, when this one's up in the air, can you throw it underneath it and trade golf balls hand to hand? Every once in a while, I have a lady like all nervous and she'll cheat. She'll do this. And then she'll go and try to hand one to her hand. And, and then pretty soon, like, I won't take long because I know everybody wants to get going. I just do it as a joke to say, hey, here's a step. You did it. Great. Here's the next step. Maybe you drop the ball. And that's okay, too. Let's just keep on with the steps. You know, I, I joke at my camp. I say, come on in the studio. I show them around. And I say, I have a magic wand. And I do. It's a Harry Potter plastic magic wand. I got at the Harry Potter thing in, in, in England. when I took my kids there. I did some coaching over there. I said, I've got this wand. I'm going to make you all freshmen in high school. And they giggle. And I go, here's why. I go, I'm going to coach you selfishly for me. I'm going to coach you because I care about how you are, but I want you to make my high school team. And none of you will now because they're all seniors and juniors and they're really good. And we're going to probably win another state championship. I'm going to coach you how I think you need to be coached. Now I know what you want because you filled out a little thing saying, this is what you want. Right. And everybody says they want consistency. Well, duh, who doesn't. Right. But I say, I'm going to coach you with what I see you need to do. And now if you were 14 and I had plenty of coaching in my sports, I was, I played a lot of hockey, a little bit of football and naturally a ton of golf. And Newton was no BS. I'll tell you what, Hal, he, if you're late, he send you home. Like if you're late, see ya. And I know that's a penalty on the parent more than it is the kid because the parent took you there when you're 12, but that's, that was his rule. And he was, and he was loving, but he was hard. And he would say, Hey, this is what you're going to do. And you're going to do this for half an hour. And we'd be like, okay, no problem. I'm happy. I'm happy to do it for you for half an hour like this. Perfect. And he would check you doing. Okay. You still working on it. Yep. I'll do it for an hour. As long as you want me to do it, Mr. Newton, I will do it. What we get sometimes. And the reason I said musicians is music. No musician just picked up a saxophone and played beautifully. They sucked. They played one note. They linked it to another note. They sounded terrible. They refined their embouchure. They got better at kind of putting their fingers on, the, on the keys where they at the time when it should happen, all of a sudden it made music. Well, guess what? Golf's kind of like that. You suck at golf. You know, if you don't try to take, you know, if we don't try to speed the process like crazy fast, you know, if you learn how to put your hands on nicely and I, and I, and I know I'm kind of talking in circles here because I want to get to the finish line quicker with students, but I still say, Hey, don't blow this. Don't blow the walking routine. You know, let's be, let's be super mindful of, you know, how to, how to do this little shot and then rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it with swings and then put a ball in place. I never let anybody rake a golf ball and hit a golf ball. They got to put a ball in place. They got to walk out. They got to rehearse a swing. They got to walk in. They got to hit it or miss it. Don't care which. Then they got to go. Okay. You know, do, did you, did you do what you wanted to do? Yeah. Did the, did you hit a good shot? No, well, that's okay. Good. Do it again. Perfect. You know, keep missing as soon, pretty soon you won't, you know, people like, I guess, a lot of people, I get this call, and you do too, Chase, and I'm sure you've heard this, Hal, buddies of yours or people calling. I played uh, college baseball. Or I played college basketball, but this darn golf game's got me buggered. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I've never heard that before, only every day all the time. I said, bottom line is, 
I could care less if you were an athlete back 25, 30 years ago. I go, do you have, can, are you going to just suck it up and not whine when I give you a drill? Because I care about your game. If you suffer with me, and I always just joke with them, just suffer with me, please. I get you for three days. I care about your game. Suffer with me. You'll get way better. Work this routine. Work on how you pair things up. Hit a bunch of these little half shots. If you can't hit it 50 yards, you can't hit it 250 with any reliability. Like, I mean, come on. You know, and I go, let's let's understand these little little guys. Then we'll put the driver in your hand and we'll figure out why the thing goes all over the place. And then maybe your body doesn't let you do it like some young whippersnapper you watch on TV or people like to say, oh, I love watching the ladies tour because they swing at more my speed. Like I get you love watching the ladies tour. There's tons of amazing lady golfers out there, but you're looking at some of the best athletes, even though they only swing it. Well, I shouldn't say only they swing at 95, hundred miles an hour. They are five foot six, five foot eight strong as an ox and they can move better than most of the men can move. So you watching them is a little tricky. I might need to coach you a little differently than how you see some LPGA tour player that hits a 250 in the air and it tumbles out 280. Exactly right. So <clears throat> tell us what you see most at your lessons and your schools fault wise from a, what, what's the biggest fault you see? You know, I, I would always come back down to people. The first lesson I ever had with George Newton was, you know, don't keep your head down. It's the first lesson, you know, so people are staring down at the golf ball and, you know, there's no relocation with the rotation at all. So Newton was great because it, it would always be his lesson would always be so simple. That it didn't matter who showed up. You know, everybody would start kind of like this and just kind of learn how to do this how to start with her weight kind of shared over both feet and how to rotate and relocate into a lead heel, you know, knees together up on a trail toe. And, you know, most folks, and I'll, and I'll always start to camp off with topping a few on purpose, like JC Anderson style and just, you know, top the snot out of a couple and I'll actually top it on a mat. It might pop up, you know, on the ceiling, but this kind of behavior, you know, and I'll say, you know, did I, did I lift my head? And they'll be like, no. I'll say, well, then how did I top it? Right. Because everybody's going to say, oh, I got too quick. Right. And there's some meaning to that. You know, you can get out of sequence for sure. But the people that that crown it and always say, oh, I lifted up on it. I mean, they obviously don't know what they're talking about. And they're getting advice from people that might have given them that inside those those that that excuse. And so I'll always talk about, hey, let's create let's create good opportunity. Let's get a nice, you know, nice, comfortably structure in our arms. Let's build a grip. Let's turn it, how to set up to a golf ball with a waggle and a routine so that when you do set yourself to it. Oh, and the, uh, the first thing George said to me, Hal, when I was a kid was don't set the club on the ground. First thing, he didn't let any of the kids like rest the club on the ground. We always had to feel like it was always barely touching the green stuff. So our measure was a little bit more reliable. He said, you, you don't want to be, you know, in this place where you're never in the same place twice. He goes, golf's hard enough. So, I mean, that, those are, you know, the club's never on the ground. And sometimes I'll take, I've got a, um, a shipping pallet, uh, one of those plastic ones, like it's kind of decent shipping pallet. And I put a, a, I put a nice doormat on the top of it, a piece of wood. And um, I'll take that out to the range. And so it's six inches high. So, the, you know, the feet are six inches off the ground. And then I'll take a little rubber tee at six inches tall. It's a grip that I cut off and the ball sits on the end of the grip pretty nice. And then I'll have them. So there's no ground for them to set the club on. So there's no way for them to re-grip it miserably too. So once the club's in their hands, they got the weight in their hands, they can't go, but um, but um, but up and then go. They've got to kind of hold the club in space because the ball is six inches up off the ground. 
and they've got to kind of learn to move the weight of the club without the ground at all. And now some people can cheat that a little bit, which is fine. And then I'll introduce, you know, I'll take an aim stick and I'll put the aim stick on an angle. So here's the six inch T ball on it. And I'll just stick an aim stick in the ground that is just below that, you know, just around the same level the ground would be. And if they ding the aim stick before they touch the ground, then they know they got a little bit underneath the plane of the ground, so to speak. But I'll, I won't let the people re-grip it to take it away either. I'll make them waggle it, keep it in their good hands and start it with peaceful hands, not, not something that does this. So since you brought that up, I'm going to ask you a question. Who's Please. one of the best drivers of the ball you've ever seen that did not ground the club? The best drivers of the golf ball that did not ground it. Um, well, Norman's up there. You're up there. Who didn't ground? Who didn't? So somebody who grounded the grounded the club and drove it great. So Greg um, Norman was it basically. That's the guy that I was. He never grounded the club. Did, ever? Did you know that? I knew that. Yeah. I don't um, think a lot of people know that, and I wanted to bring that up because yeah. you mentioned that. Nicholas didn't ground the club. I mean, but most people set the club on the ground. All, yeah. Don't most modern day players set the club on the ground? I did set the club on the ground, mm -hmm. but I barely touched the ground. I did no, not want it. Yeah, that's different, bud. That's different. Like I, I have no problem with this. In fact, we we use we use the expression tap tap go like. Like uh, tap tap means it's in your hands. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like I always also say, don't crush the ladybug. So like, don't kill the ladybug behind the golf ball. Right. And then some people I'll, I'll say, it, I'll say it to some, I won't say it to others. Like if I look at somebody and I don't have to say something, I won't say it to say it, you know, I'll move on to something else. Like if they have a nice pair of hands, which is, I'll tell you something interesting. I, I, ta I taught in the UK. Okay. I've done a handful of golf schools in the UK, almost to the person, nice hands on the golf club. In the United States and Canada, not that way, man. Like somebody always says, oh, you got to interlock your hands, which is fine. But here's what happens. I mean, they go and then this interlocks webbing to webbing. Next thing you know, this right hand has no place to get on the grip nicely, right? Because things wrap too far around. And then they'll right. say, well, Nicholas and Tiger interlock. And I go, yeah, but they got beautiful grips. You know, yeah, they interlock, but they don't go and hold it like a baseball with an interlocking grip, Right. Right. So, you know, I'm a, a gripping, I've got my pet peeves, trash and parking lots, cigarette butts, of car windows and bad interlock grips drive me nuts. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't prefer an interlock grip. Um, you, you prefer overlap? Well, uh, to, I don't mind you. I don't mind you. I always teach an, an overlap because if you can do it nicely, if you can get your hands on nicely, it's no big deal to go here. You see right. my point? And then I know the merit, I mean, the merit's simple, an interlock grip, like this whole thing of connecting hands, the hands from coming apart, rubbish. When an interlock grip is when you take your index finger, left hand index finger off the grip, when you squeeze, you know, there's a ton of tension in thumb and index. So if you can take that off, like you're never going to bust your own pinky finger. So right. it takes a little bit of tension off, which I understand. People always think it's to connect hands. I go there. Those are just as connected. You know, Mo Norman did this forever. And then as he got older, went to 10 finger. You know, I just think that learning the grip in, in an overlap, over, overlap is, is easier. And then some people bugger that up too and go too much around and too much in the right palm. I mean, you chase, you see it all day. So, yeah, it's funny. So, we, we tend to say the same thing about Tiger and Nicholas interlock, but we tend to kind of prefer this one, the, the overlap a little yeah. bit more. Um, but how, go ahead and you're going to say something. So 
do you think I didn't know Mo, Mo Norman ten fingered it towards the end of his lifetime? Do you think that's why Dave Barr ten fingered it? You know, Dave, man, who knows? You know, who knows? Like I didn't know Dave very well. I played with him one time. Um, I was around him a handful of times. You know, he don't know why he ten fingered it. What's the guy on tours? He's, there's been a few Estes. Uh, the guy from Vegas, he's a damn good player. What's his name? Uh, he's currently on tour. He's been on tour 20 years. He's Jeff Smith coaches him. Oh man. I can't remember his name. He's, he's Strillman. He's no, not Strillman. No, no, no. Uh, Strillman lives here in Phoenix, Scottsdale. Oh. Um, I can't remember, but I just think that if, if hands, you know, and everybody says, you know, you can have a funky grip and play good golf. Of course you can, of course you can, but if you suck, you come to me and you're terrible, right? Like I mean, people that maybe their best they played their whole life and their best score is 88. Okay. You know, you, that's a lot of golf. That's a lot of bad golf. Because if you're, if you write down one of our questions is what's your best score ever in the year you shot it. And somebody says to me, I had this happen. Guy says I shot 89. I'm like, Oh, congratulations. When was it? He said yesterday. I said, Oh, okay. Your best score ever was 89. I go, where'd you shoot that? And this was in Toronto at a golf camp I did north of the city. He goes, oh, I was up at Barry Country Club, which is a lovely little country club. In fact, a old friend of mine's the pro there, just retired. And I go, oh, okay. And I go, what tees did you play? He goes, the senior tees. Now, the senior tees are one step behind the ladies' tee. Like, I'm talking there, the flower pots. It's 5,000-yard, 18-hole golf course. It's, a, it's chip and putt. And this guy's best score ever was 89. He'd been a member there 40-something years. You know what that's a testament to being uh, enjoying the outdoors. Cause that's not golf. What he did for 40 years at that place. <laughs> so when he came to me, I'm serious. Let's be honest. He came to me and I, and his grip was awful. And he goes to me, he goes, you mean to tell me you're going to change my grip? I go, well, buddy, I mean, you, you've been a member of this club for 40 years. You broke 91 time. You basically shoot hundred every day. Cause if your best score is 89, you're going to go shoot 99 every day. You know, you shoot 62 Hal or 60 or 59. You know, it means you're going to go shoot 69, 73 every day. You're going to shoot 10 more than your best score ever, unless the planets align, right? And so, you know, the guy, the guys fight me on stuff. And so sometimes I got to say, listen, bud, I mean, you can choose to play really bad golf. You came to this camp. Why not just explore the possibilities of what I'm going to show you here? Explore it. You know, let's explore this because I'm not going to make you any worse. I hate this. And I joke with people all the time. I say, you sucked when you got here. And I know you just hit a few bad shots in front of me, but you still suck. And that's absolutely fine. Deal with the challenge I'm issuing for you. I got your back. And by the way, at my camp, we don't just, well, you don't just come and leave. I create this online platform for you with coach now, which you guys are probably familiar with. You know, if I turn it on right here, I've got 3,500 students in this right there. And so they're welcome to post swings. And I get back to them all the time. I've got one notification at the moment here. Let me see who it is. I got this lovely little girl from Toronto. Yeah, who, you, you know, been working on her swing. You're invested in seeing them improve. Like we uh, all totally. are, right? We we win if they get better. Like you're not gonna. Amen. Is it Scott Piercy? Is that who it was? Yes, it? Scott yeah, Piercy. Scott yeah, Piercy. ten finger grip, great striker. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we, how and I talk about this all the time, and we see, you know, there's if you. If you follow the Facebook groups online, you, you see a bunch of people talking about handle dragging and how, how bad it is. But one of the, one of you, you know, your first uses for your training aid was for low point control. Let's just, it's shaffling and low point control. I can't yeah. tell you how many 
one degree down attack angles that we see in here and seven to 10 right pass. And that's, that is my biggest pet peeve control. I, we talk, I say it all the time, controlling the circle. I posted on Instagram about a closed club face the other day because the kid couldn't do anything but swing way to the right and raise the handle. Mm. It drives me nuts. I saw your post. I hate you, that. I hate that look. Do you see the same thing as far as like, obviously the, and, and, and this is a good point too, to your older crowd, we got a lot of good, good older players that are coming in that are having, starting to have some trouble with low point control that never did when they were younger. So do you see that I I've got for every one handle dragger, eight down good player, I've got 55,000 that are zero or one up or one down and can't find the bottom. Do you, do you Amen. see in Arizona? Exactly the same. You know, it's um, in my camp, it's kind of funny. You have, it, you know, it's usually 12 people in a golf camp. And so they'll go through this. I test them in the morning. I don't have to. I really, you know why I test them? I test them to get some objective data so that the one or two grumpy people, okay, and I deal with the grumpy, I give them shit right back and we have a good time. But I, I, I test them so I can show them, okay, hey, when you got here, you sucked. It's okay. So don't complain to me in the afternoon of day one that you still suck. I mean, you know, if you went to piano camp for the weekend, could you play like, you know, Billy Joel when you walked out of there after one day? You can't. We're working a process here. I want to educate you on why, you know, this, this club is, you know, for that strong face, shallow, you know, no, no uh, angle of attack person, why that is the case, like why they respond to that face that way, or they'd smother hook every golf ball. You know, why this like super cuppy wide open face person has to back up to buy more time to square the face. So once they start to go, okay, man, all right, this is the low hanging fruit of why I'm not the golfer I want to be. Right. So I got to give them a broad scope of why I think they're not the golfer they want to be. But every golfer gets the walking routine. Like that's something you got to do. I'm sorry. Every player, any, anybody who's ever been any good, like when you hit that shot at Firestone, how you might have, I guarantee you, your heart was a bump, a bump, a bump, a bump, a bump. But there was some kind of inner peace where you were like, okay, this is my club. Yeah, it's dark outside. You walk into this shot and you went through your routine and you looked up and you're like, thank you. Thank you, God, be the right club today. You know, and it was like a decision. And then, and then somehow this, it wasn't lucky, man, right? There was a routine of things and the ball got in the way of routine. And maybe you tow it a bit and it overdraws by five yards to the left or maybe a neck at a tick and it just bleeds out to the right or maybe you flush it and it's perfect or maybe the swing's not perfect and you tow it close right like nobody realizes like bad swings can produce a good shot and good swings can produce you know a bit of an impact error that's not pleasing that can go in the lake right like you could have made a good swing but maybe you hit it on the neck and the ball you know spun a little off to the right and went in the water or maybe you towed it a little bit and the ball hooked into the left rough and now it's thick and juicy and you can't advance it, you, you know? So you, you gotta, gotta be able to control that stuff. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, what is, what is their, what's the thing, the root of destroying their ability to really control their golf ball. We work hard on that at the camp. Everybody wants to know the schedule. They always say, okay, well, what are we going to do from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock on the second day? Are we going to learn how to, Mike, you're going to, you know, I post a schedule because everybody wants to look at one. I'm going to tell you when I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you breakfast. I'm going to give you lunch. And then I take them out to play with them every afternoon. Like they go play with my coaches. They're all good players. And so they get to see how we'll talk through a shot. Like it's a front pin. Okay. So the high-speed golfer can 
hit a hard shot up in the air because when it lands, maybe it stays there. Does it have a false front? Eh, you might want to be careful hitting a hard shot. It might spin down back off the green. You know, there's a back pin. Now, maybe I take a little off a shot, land it in the middle of the green, let it trundle to the back. You know, there's a, a maybe a lady's got 75 mile an hour driver swing speed and she's 150 yards out and she's got to pull that head cover off some kind of hybrid, right? Well, I'm saying, okay, careful. Take a look. What's, see the front of the green's kind of baked out right there. It's kind of dry. That ball's going to land right there. Guess what it's going to do? It's going to go boom and roll across the green. Oh, I never saw that. I'm like, I know you didn't. I want to help you look at the surroundings and make, and, and it's like poker, man. You got to kind of, you know, or chess, you got to look at it and go, well, is it going to be wet in front of the green? Because all the moisture goes from, you know, the back of the green to the front of the green. Is it dry? Where's your ball going to land? Can a, can a slow swing speeder land it on that green? No, they can't. They got to land short and trundle on or land short and get stuck in the wet stuff and chip it on. And that's okay. You know, so we take them up to play too. So we, they can walk through the routine and then maybe we talk about strategy a little bit and ball above the feet, ball below the feet. Um, oh, the wind's up. You know, that's a beauty. You know, like Trackman published a great study um, a number of years ago now about like into the wind and how much it beats up a golf ball. And down the wind, it doesn't help you as much as you think. You know, and so people into the wind, it's, I, I can't even tell you and how you played and how many pro-ams and how many of your amateur partners ever hit it pin high. I mean, None. none ever I, right and every good player guess what i mean we miss hit shots to the front of the green and chip it up and that's a better place to miss but you know good players tend to get it not necessarily pin high but the distance they want it to go so that they can either get the ball in the in for a par or maybe challenge with a 15 footer or you know stuff it if, if the if the you know the conditions a green light you know so we try to show golfers for their speed hey this is a good strategy to make a bogey or this is a good strategy to make a par hey this is a green light you know you've got a nine iron you're a buck 35 there's really no trouble left or right that bunker in the back's not a hazard unless you hit it in the forehead you know this is you can aim at the pin here right so we try to explain that to them and, and explain how how even the best players aren't aren't like machines they they, they have a miss they kind of know how to judge it they know when to you know how to buffer against it um so you know, we, we have fun. I don't know why I'm going down this road, but anyway, I'm talking about it, but I like getting people on the golf course so that they can see and talk through their, what they, what they're trying to do. And I'm thinking that's, and that's hard for a lot of coaches. A lot of coaches are standing in a, in a facility teaching in one spot and they don't get a chance to take their people out. Cause I'll tell you, you can coach them all day and you can get them organized and they can walk into their golf ball. But as soon as you get them on a tee box that does name down the fairway, they're aiming wherever the damn tee box is pointing them. Yeah. you know, or it's the funniest thing you ever saw. And so we try to show them how not to get sucked in by a bad tee box, get sucked in by where the tee markers are placed. Um, understand that the right rough over there is super wispy. You can kind of see it from here. Go ahead and hit it down the right side. It goes in the rough. It's not even a penalty. You know, that left rough though, that's that water all goes down there. It, you're not hitting it too well out of that. You know, just little things like that, that help players make more bogeys and pars than doubles and others. So I'm listening to you here, Martin, and one of the things that I like the most is, is you're dead honest, even if it hurts. And in order to be a better player, you must learn to be honest with yourself. Oh. 
most of the pro-am players that I played with throughout my life, they lived, they had this fantasy about who they really were as a golfer. They did not have an inventory of their game. They didn't even know what they did well and didn't do well. They thought they hit it further than they actually hit it. So how can you play a decent game of golf with all of those fantasy thoughts? You know, every professional tour player, they didn't live in fantasy land. They lived, they had to learn to learn to live in the truth. You know, we knew exactly how far we hit it. I never knew a total yardage that I hit an iron because it changed from week to week. The only yardage I could count on was a carry yardage. Everybody comes in here is looking at their total yardage. It's a joke. I mean, the simple things that we take for granted as good players, the, the, the players that you're teaching all the time struggle with those things. Is that what you're finding? Man, it's 100%. So funny story. So the guy who hosted me in the UK, you know, a number of years ago now, I go over there, I'm doing these golf camps at a Marriott Resort. It's great. And and we've got like half a day to kill. And this is back when TrackMan's kind of a new thing. And he was all excited. He got these new irons. And so I said, hey, knock yourself out. He, he, want, he goes, I'm hitting the shit out of these irons. I'm like, okay, cool. So I took all the data away. I just let him change. And I went and hit some balls myself, but he was in front of the TrackMan. All it, all it allowed him to do was click on the iPad and change the clubs. That's all I let him do. Okay. So he came back. He goes, I'm done. I'm okay, cool. So I turn on the data. I go, okay, okay, cool. So your seven iron, I go, your seven iron goes, uh, it averaged a buck 35 in the air. And then there was this pause of disbelief. Like, no, 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 no. I hit my seven iron 160. I'm like, no, I hit my seven iron 160. You hit your seven iron 130, 135 or whatever the number was. He goes, no, no, no. I hit it. I'm like, buddy, I, you can bullshit yourself or you can be a good golfer. Here's the facts. You know, I used to sort of play. I still can kind of play. I swing my seven iron about 86 miles an hour, 87 miles an hour. When I hit it solid, it flies 160, 165. And that's not with a jacked up loft. That's with the loft that makes it go up in the air with a bit of spin on it. And it lands at this number. I said, you've got some decent golf clubs here. They weren't all like rocket ships. Like everybody buys these rocket ships. Now that's part of the problem too. They hit this knuckleball that has no spin on it. Won't stop where it lands. And so he was just so befuddled that in his mind, to your point, Hal, he didn't have this fantasy anymore. But I, so we played that afternoon and I said, okay, here's a good example. We got a buck 35 to carry this, this bunker. And this is in the UK and there's a stack sod wall bunker right there. And I go, okay, buck 35, a little bit of breeze for me, pins on about 10, okay? I'm going to chip an eight iron. I'm in a little chippy eight iron, a little, little Tommy Fleetwood hold on that thing. I'm going to flight one in there, and I hit, a, I hit a nice shot. I said, okay. So I said, I'll give you as many balls as you want, and you can hit seven iron. I guarantee you, unless you bone one right in the forehead the right way, none of these balls are flying over that bunker with this little bit of breeze, you know? And so we're friendly by now, and he's like, okay, do you think one ball got on the green? Not one. Not one. He pull hooked a couple hard ones, left, chunked a few, hit a couple that were, oh, that's there, that's there, boom, into the bunker. And I said, okay, please now do me a favor. Take this six iron, okay, or take this five iron. And, you know, you can swing a little under full speed in an iron, by the way. Did you know that? You know, like shocking, right? <laughs> I go, you can actually take a little off and just kind of feather one on the green and, you know, kind of control the flight a bit. And sure enough, he hit a couple on the green because nobody's on the golf course. They're out there farting around. And he was like, man, like, oh, my, you know, just like in his brain, just like shocking, right? Nuts. But anyway, you got to be truthful. Like, you're right. You really got to be truthful. 
Yeah, you really got to learn to be honest to play, be a good player. So tell us, you told us about the first time you met George Knutson. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your relationship with George Knutson because it wasn't it extended. Didn't you have a longer yeah. relationship? Yeah, you know, sadly, it, uh, in 1989, he passed away. But when I first met him, you know, I went to a golf camp. I, I, my dad signed me up for this one day thing with him, which was fantastic. And he basically said, okay, do this. And I did it. And I tried hard all day. And at the end of the day, he told my dad, he goes, you know what? If I have an open spot, your son can come back for free anytime. And I was like blown away. My dad was blown away. And that was like, wow, okay, cool. Because I loved golf. And if this guy, you know, w- was who could hit it, is like he hit it was giving me insights. I was going to listen and man. And if I get a kid that motivated to, to be good at golf, I'm like, I'll do anything I can for that kid. Old gear here. You want that club. If it doesn't, if it's not too stiff for you, knock yourself out. It's yours. Come back, sit in on anything you want to sit in on. It's yours. But if I get a kid who's a sniveler whiner, man, I don't even want to coach him. I don't even care how much his dad pays me. But, you know, so basically from that time till, he started a junior golf academy with Ben Kern at the National in Woodbridge. Just not, you know, the other side of town from Glen Abbey. But did you ever play the National, by the way? Did you ever get I up there? I did not. No, I didn't. Oh, man, you'd have loved it. It, it was, uh, to me, it's still my favorite course in the world. And so good. A U.S. Open every day there. Honestly, that good. And the rough wasn't that bad, but it could be. So he did a junior development camp, um, and I was a part of that. So he would coach us in the morning for three hours, and then we'd go off to do a job divot repair caddy and pulling weeds do whatever so we, we trained we worked and then we could go play and we did that all summer long it was fabulous and then when, when i was 16 he opened his own range he broke away from the national some guy gave him however many acres you need to open a range beside a golf course on the main thoroughfare north south in toronto and i went to work for him there as did some of the other kids so we'd make a living and here's here's the thing it was a private range it wasn't expensive but you had to pay 300 bucks a year to be a member so there was, you couldn't just come off the street and hit golf balls. You paid your 300 bucks, then you could buy your golf balls. And so what George did was, hey, they had to come in. They, they, there was this like introduction thing. George would go through a spiel with everybody on how he believed the golf swing worked. And then they could go hit as many balls as they wanted when they bought their golf balls. And then me and the guys that worked there, and you, you, would, know, you would know Brennan Little, Gary Woodland's caddy. Brennan worked there yeah. with me, Butchie, and David Moreland. You probably know David Moreland. And so we worked at this place and we would walk the range. And if somebody was, they'd been trained by George in his intro clinic. And then we walked the range and say, Hey, how you doing? The guy said, oh, I'm still slicing. And we'd like, okay. So we would look them where their alignments were. We, you know, George taught us enough to kind of look at the top and see if the face was getting too crazy. And then we would try to explain to them, Hey, you know, you're, you know, this so when I'm 16, I started kind of coaching. I wasn't paid for lessons. I was paid by George, my 10 bucks an hour, whatever he paid me at the time was a lot of money. And I got to hit as many balls as I wanted to. So George would be there every day. And then we'd be there all the time. And then George was getting ready for the champions tour. You know, at the time he was 49 and I'll never forget this Titleist sent him like a, a crate of clubs, his bladed um, FM precision 7.0 shaft, crazy stiff shafts. And they sent him like six or seven of the same club. Exactly. Thick corded grip super stiff shaft, you know, Brunswick precision 7.0s and these tireless blades. And so I was there the day we got to take them all out of the boxes and put all these wedges in here and all these nine irons and all these eight irons and seven irons. And anyway, he went out to the range and there, there we go. He hit one wedge, toss it in this pile, another wedge, toss it in this pile. And then he got two. And then he said to us, Hey, do me a favor, wrap those up real nice, put them back in the box. We'll ship those back to Titleist. 
So out of the mess of clubs he got, he got a set that, you know, one set that he, one club he loved and one club that he felt was a backup. And then we created up the other ones and sent them back to wherever that we sent them back to. But, you know, and then he passed, poor guy got, you know, cancer and died like pretty suddenly. So that was sad because I would have loved to have him like be the, uh, when I tried to play some, it would have been great to have him kicking my ass a bit to say, hey, listen, okay, you missed a cut, big deal. Don't go chasing girls, get some sleep, get up in the morning, go back to that course with your tail between your legs because that range is free for you for the Saturday, Sunday when Brant Job and Steve Stricker are kicking ass and, and just keep hitting balls. You know, and then next week get prepared. What was your miss? Blah, 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 blah. So, you know, it would have been nice. Not to say that I'd have been any better, but it would have been great to have him in my ear when I was trying to play the Canadian tour in the web dot back in the day. Right. Martin, one of the things that Hal and I talk about, and Hal's mentioned this a lot, is that he, he if he could go back, he would stick with the instructors that cared the most about him. Not so much like trying to use him to gain, you know, build up their name or whatever, but it was the guys that cared the most. Would you agree with that as far as like your relationship with George? Yeah. You, you know, in, it was a different time then. I, I think, um, and I, being a tour coach, like people always say to me, you know, yeah, well, who do you teach on tour? And I'll say, well, occasionally like a guy will send me a video to look at or I'll, you know, consult with their coach and I'll give my insights. If I see anything, I'll go, but honestly, the, the thought of being a tour coach to me, it, it'd be like banging my head against a wall to travel on a Sunday and come back on a Wednesday or Thursday. I've got little kids in this house. I have more damn fun going to a sporting event or my daughter's dance or and just being a dad, you know? So I can't imagine like that lifestyle. Like I give a lot of credit to guys like Foley that could keep their marriage together and keep their wife loving them and kids liking them being gone as much as he had to be gone to create his, you know, abilities as a coach and those guys out there every, every week, I couldn't do it. I really couldn't. Like, I like my little life. I, you know, I have a fun golf camp. People come see me uh, in the summer. I take my little camp on the road. I'm gone about 10 days a month. I, I play in the section events here in, in Arizona, you know, I'll enter those and put my tee in the ground and see how I do. And um, it's a, it's nice. And if some tour player or some really good player, you know, wants to take a lesson, I say, okay, yeah, go to tourstrikergolfacademy.com and, and pick and go ahead and click yourself a time, you know, and I'll tell all these coaches out there, I, I don't, anything booked on my calendar is, is booked and paid for in advance. They click it and they buy my time because if they do that, I'm going to show up. Well, I'm going to show up anyway, but they're going to show up because, you know, you sell your time in this business and, you know, I have my training aid business, which my wife Stacy runs, but you know, when you're selling your time, I try to tell these coaches, they got to have respect for you, man. I mean, if they want your time, it, like if I miss a haircut, I pay the guy anyway, the next time I see him, because I don't expect that guy to sit around for, you know, he lost 30 bucks on me because I made a boo-boo and I was late or I forgot about it. You know, like that's not fair, but you're a guy selling your time and your expertise, which is a ton, you know, both you guys, and if some guy, oh, you know, I can't make it. Well, if you paid me already, guess what? You think anybody has ever missed a lesson in 11 years at the Raven? Uh, I can't think of any. I cannot think of any. Now, a couple times in fairness, I've booked people in because they've had a hard time on the website and stuff. And guess who's missed a couple lessons? Those people, because they didn't have skin in the game when it was time to get there. You know, so I don't even know why I went down that road. But a lot of coaches are watching this. Sure. And you know what? Respect your time and people will respect you more. Well, especially as much much research and and work we put into our craft to get better, 
you know oh. it's not just yeah. like it was in the old like there's a thread going on on facebook that that some or on it on twitter that says something about uh fitters shouldn't be paid if they if the 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 customer buys clubs from them I'm like it shouldn't be paid a fitting fee i'm like man that's so tough like there, there's a lot right. that goes into this we we're not just we're not just telling everybody to keep their head still or swing to right field or, or all the old stuff that used to happen. Um, last question for you, give everyone, every golfer listening at home away, uh, a new year's resolution to, to help them improve their, improve their game on any level. You know, new year's resolution. I, I was never a big resolution guy. Um, Cause if I wanted to do something. I would just do it, you know, it was June or it was December or whatever, but you know, the, I'd say the the older dudes that I meet, you know, they there's a sedentary lifestyle that I would say to them, you want to get better at golf, just just be a little bit, just be a little bit better fit human. You know, make sure you go on walks, try to do a little stretching. Um, I would tell you that I'll give you one little <laughs> funny story. We're at the PGA show years ago, our little booth, the second year, and there's this dude beside us who's called the golf yogi mark williamson great guy we're great pals now and he had a training aid called the golfer's toolbox and we we bought that off and we're gonna relaunch that it's a fun little product and it's a t-square you see on the ground and all my videos and it's got a bunch of things and we've changed it it's going to come out sometime this year and so he's a yogi guy and he's a fitness guy he's a damn fine golfer too and so my wife goes hey why don't you have mark come and do a little part of your golf school like teach people how to stretch and warm up properly and I'm like, ah, oh, these guys don't want to do that, babe. They want to hit the golf ball. They don't want to, they, no. And so sure enough, yeah, just give it a try. Well, that was 10 years ago. Okay, Mark has come to my golf camp every week now for 10 years, everyone in Arizona, 22 that I do. And on the second day in the morning after breakfast, he gets them for about an hour. And he literally rolls out the yoga mats and most of the weather's beautiful. So they're out in the back deck and they're, you know, my deck at Raven on the grass. And if it's a little chilly, we have this indoor space they can do it in. And to the, to the person at the end of that hour, they're all like, man, that was great. That was so much fun. I feel ready to go. And it's not like they're, you got to put yoga pants on, but he does basic little things to get these 50 somethings to 90 somethings, like a little bit ready to go, you know? So, you know, you'd say, you probably thought I was going to give one little technique thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm going to just be like, you know, go for walks, do a little stretching and, you know, go get yourself some yoga pants. I want to see Helen some yoga pants and doing at the <laughs> yoga studio. <laughs> hey, uh, Mark, crossing your yes, legs. Mark, you're not going to see that. <laughs> <laughs> what about, what about for your, for younger, younger generation, say, say kids, say high school kids, college kids, listen, you know, and to, to Hal's point, it's be truthful, you know, like I'm a, no, like what what is the what is the issue is it pitching the ball from 40 yards is it you know is it certain shots it, like find out what drives you what you can't do and fix it you know don't keep practicing what you're pretty good at like get in your own head what what do you suck at and and just face the demon man whatever it is nobody's perfect like look i'm amazed tiger woods came out of that the chipping yips that i saw him zip it around the phoenix open couldn't it was unbelievable People say, what do you think? Is Tiger coming back? I'm like, no, it's not. I just witnessed a, I just witnessed a guy zinging it across greens with sand wedge on nice lies. And now, you know, and, and I was like befuddled. Like I expected him to see him miss hit shots. That's one thing. 
that I didn't expect to see him miss hit a variety of greenside shots. So that to me, you know, for him to go, okay, let's pump the brakes on this. Let's revisit a bit of technique here. Let's develop our feels again for a little chip, pitch, punch, high ones, low ones, and then feel like he can go do that again in competition, which he clearly could because he won the damn masters after that, you know, that blew my mind. Cause I thought he was done when he couldn't control himself around the green there. I wasn't worried about his full swing stuff that that stuff come back, but the green stuff, I was like, he's done. And then he's not. And then this is Charlie's my new favorite golfer, man. That kid is unbelievable. How good that kid was blew my mind, you know, crazy. So older generation go, go out and walk a little bit, get the yoga pants on. Mm-hmm. And younger generation, be truthful with uh, your just be truthful, more truthful with, yep. your, with your game and, and with your your weaknesses and strengths. Amen. Do it for the love first. You got to love it. If you don't love it, do something else. And then but, but find out what you suck at and fix it. Well, for all you guys listening at home, if you're interested in any awesome training aids, again, Tour Striker Golf, um, it, it's tourstriker.com. Tourstriker.com will get you to the training aids, and there's a link there to my academy, too, if you have instruction questions, if you want to visit us in Phoenix. If you're on the West Coast, for sure. If you're in, in Phoenix area, in Arizona, man, go see, go see Martin. He's the best. We, uh, we're big fans of your products. Like I said, I think I use the smart ball, smart ball about every day. Um, <laughs> Kyle, take us, take us out. Martin, it's been a pleasure having you on. I've uh, admired the stuff you've developed, and now I admire you with what you think, too. This is oh, the first time so. I've ever really yeah. listened to all the stuff you think. Uh, you think like a good player, and I, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, there's a reason why you spent a lot of years becoming a better player, and uh, like you said, you got to get paid for your time. You you invested your lifetime into it, and people need to understand that. Thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll have you again uh, sometime if it's convenient for you. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be on, guys. It's been a pleasure, Hal. I've been a big fan for a lot of years, man. So Merry Christmas to you guys, and uh, be healthy, and we'll, we'll see you down the road, okay? Thank Merry you, Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. Take care. Be the right club today. Yes!